electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Hey, welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. We are on Rally Watch following the best week for stocks in months. So is there enough momentum to keep your money going into the end of the year? Big question, of course. You all want to know the answer. We discuss and debate that with the investment committee. Joining me for the hour today, Jason Snipe, Amy Raskin, Steve Weiss. And with me right here on set is Joe Terranova. Let's check stocks, see what we're doing here. Carl mentioned a choppy session thus far. Dow's good uh, for about 55. S&P, NASDAQ, Russell are negative. 387 is the yield on the 10-year note. All right, so Joe. We come off this week uh, in which some are saying you get like a year's worth of gains in a couple of days. Um, So what now? Where does it leave us with, let's, you know, six or so weeks to go in the year? So I think it leaves you in a place where a lot of people are going to say, okay, let's look towards the S&P 500 and the 200-day moving average at 4078. Let's see if we could engage some of these rules following uh, non-discretionary funds at that level. I think what the important thing to identify if you're going to be factoring that in for the end of the year is, has liquidity, has liquidity conditions improved? And I don't think the answer internally in the equity market to that is yes. So liquidity hasn't improved. What do I do with that? What I do with that is I go towards where I find confidence in the market. I mentioned the 200-day moving average. Guess what? 200-day moving average. Small caps. Dow Industrial, mm-hmm. Materials, Energy, Financial, Healthcare, all above the 200-day moving average. So what am I telling you? I'm telling you stay if you're going to be invested and you're thinking about opportunities. Do it in the direction of the defensively oriented sectors and parts of the market. The mega caps, the technology stocks, not ready yet. Yeah, we're going to debate that. So you say while liquidity has not improved, you could say volatility has improved bond market volatility has improved mm-hmm. it's certainly not as volatile as it as it was volatility within the equity market at least for this moment has somewhat improved those are two of the six reasons tom lee says that you have a game changer uh, last week of why you get a year-end rally one of the reasons why volatility has improved is because the mega caps have stopped going down So you've seen a pause in the tax loss selling. We needed to see that for the market to have an opportunity to experience the type of appreciation that we've had in the last several days. So, Jason Snipe, you know, you have what I think we've said at times is a now and and later market. You have what you think you can do now, despite what you think may happen later. You know, into 2023, rates remain high, higher for longer. They, they may slow the pace, which obviously they're going to do at some point. But you get rates that are higher for longer. You get a continued slowdown in the economy. You have earnings expectations um, and growth continue to come down. However, in the here and now, you have Mike Wilson again, Morgan Stanley, 
who says while the lower end of our prior target for the rally was achieved on Friday, we think the upper end of that range, which was 4150, by the way, will be reached. And we would not rule out even higher prices should the 10 year fall more precipitously, i.e. three, three and a quarter. I mean, it's like 380 something now. So yep. 386. So you got some work to do 50 basis points or so on the 10 year. But again, despite what you may think is in store down the road, is there a runway for the next six weeks to have a meaningful continued move higher? I would agree with Mike here. Uh, on those points. I mean, if we look at to last week, obviously, we, we saw a much softer uh, number on the inflationary print. Uh, we saw a dollar that was down 4% last week, and we saw also treasuries taking a break. So for me, in the short run, and, and potentially we have another inflationary print before the Fed makes a decision here in December, I think in the short run, we can see a rally. I think the seasonality plays a role here. I think positioning potentially plays a role here uh, where folks are offside. So I think in, in the short run, yes, uh, you know, into year end, I think we could see a rally. Obviously, there's still headwinds, you know, going into 2023 with a Fed that still needs to be very much engaged. As Powell has mentioned in the past, they'd rather over tighten than take the the foot off the gas too early and see inflation continue to surge. But it's very encouraging uh, to see these numbers pull back some. We got PPI tomorrow. We got retail sales. So another good reads on the on the economy and the consumer. But yes, I think over the next six weeks into year end, I do think that the, the market can move here. What about you, Weiss? So, you know, Tom Lee says supportive. Wilson, who is just like you, negative on the market overall, suggests, yeah, we, we can get to 4150, if not beyond that. And then we'll, you know, we'll see what happens into next year, which he still thinks we're going to hit new lows into 23. But how about this move between now and the end of the year, which you yourself must believe in? Otherwise, you wouldn't have bought 10 to 15 new positions in stocks that we documented late last week. (laughs) Yeah, no, I I think it's dependent on a couple of factors. Number one, PPI tomorrow. If we get an outlandish number either way, if it's not showing any relief in inflation, then uh, the market trade down if it's significant. If we're off by by a bip or two, I don't think it matters. However, if it's lower and shows some softness, as we saw last week with CPI, then you'll see it go forward. And then we come to Powell. At this point, everybody's looking for 50 basis points at this meeting in in mid-December. And if that's the case, and depending upon what Powell says, he's got to be more hawkish than he's been in the past to derail the rally. But those are two bumps along the way. I think the market can navigate them. I don't think it's for the reasons that Tom Lee cites. Too often, you have strategists and others talk about volatility only when the market's going down, only when the market's going up. But you're taking a look at the bond market today. That's volatility with what's happened in the 10-year today. So volatility's not gone out of the market. There's downside volatility and well, there's upside I mean, volatility. I think it's fair to say so that's extreme, not a reason only. No, no, no. The extreme volatility in the bond market has subsided. That, that was a point of, uh, you know, you're not having 40 basis point moves in, in a day. I mean, the extreme volatility in the bond market has certainly cooled. The Extreme volatility in the stock market, at least for the for the time being, um, has, in fact, cooled the CPI. Obviously, that's not true, Scott. Scott, that's wrong. When the market goes up a thousand points, that's volatility, no matter how you look at it. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's not only when the market goes down a thousand points that's volatile. It's when it goes up a thousand points also. So that's what scares people. 
So those aren't healthy scenarios. The market is showing extreme volatility today when you take a look at a long-term basis. It's not natural for the bond market to trade where it is trading today versus off of Thursday's close. Of course, it was closed Friday. So I don't know where you get it that well, extreme it volatility Friday, has died as you said, down. So you're Anything obviously going to get it. You may get a, a yeah. little bit of um, outsized move to make up for the lack of trading on Friday. All I really want right. to know, frankly, and, and I think all our viewers uh, want to know, forget the reasons, really. I mean, if you want to pick apart Tom Lee's reasoning, that's just fine. But do you think, like I said, you, you must think that... No, I agree with Wilson's view, and that's what I said, that the market can't continue to rally until we get to earnings that show some degradation of what the analysts are looking for, which is still 220 to 230. And I still think we're at 200 for, for next year. And that's going to be the weakness that's going to take the market down eventually. But you're seasonally, you're in the right time of year for the market to continue to rally. And I think that we'll continue to see it. Unless, as I said, Powell is extremely hawkish. Look, we've had all these Fed governors come out, voting and non-voting, who've been extremely hawkish over the last uh, couple of weeks. Brainerd exception wasn't really a couple hawkish two, today, saying though. Maybe we slow down. Fed Vice right. Chair Brainerd right. today, the appropriate of- soon to move to slower pace of increases. Duh. Right. I mean, and we had one or two last. Yeah, one or two last week did the same thing. But you can undo that with Powell. I don't think you will. So I do believe the market continued rally in year to okay. year end. All right. Uh, Amy, what about you? I know what Weiss was doing, by the way. I know what he's doing. Amy. Um, I, I tend he's to being agree. right as I usual. Think, oh, boy. <laughs> I think, um, <laughs> I mean, all the leading indicators of inflation have it coming down pretty significantly. So I think whether it's the next six weeks or not, I do think you get a little reprieve here. Um, until we see where it shakes out, uh, you know, and how how high, how much higher than two percent it is, um, I do think the, the the market has some wind at its back here. You know, I don't know. Tech is an interesting question still, Joe. You you said it at the at the outset. A lot of people are trying to you know figure. Okay, is is the worst of of tech over with? Can you count on it? to participate in the rally between now and the end of the year. I find it hard to believe that you can get a really good rally without it. Right. Um, You are coming off the best week since March. This is the anniversary, by the way, of the peak in the NASDAQ. It's, you know, from peak to the low thus far, 37 percent decline. Right. I don't know if the tax law selling is going to reappear. And if it does, it's going to impact technology and it's going to impact the mega caps. Um, I'm personally long Apple and Microsoft. That's where my exposure has been reduced to. Uh, I still think that I agree with the panel. I think that the market, the probability is that we are going to target the 200-day moving average for the S&P at 4078. The market right now has a clear runway for it to have some relief and have a relief recovery. I'm just not confident that you're going to see the tax law selling abate. I'm not confident that there's enough improvement in overall liquidity conditions that I want to assume the risk in going towards places where you've seen a lot of performance damage occur in 2022. And that's why I'm advocating for healthcare, industrials, financials, materials, energy. Why do you have to make it so complicated? Stay in that direction. That's where the confidence right now is being identified ride those sectors through the remainder of the year. You don't yet have the all clear to assume the risk and the risk surrounding 
no improvement in liquidity conditions for a lot of the non-profitable technology and consumer discretionary names and also the mega caps. You know, Weiss, if you look at the the one month change in in stocks in the major averages, the Nasdaq, while up, obviously, is up the least of everything else. S&P is up 11 and a quarter percent over the last month. The Dow's up four, more than 14. Russell, 11. Nasdaq up nine. It gives you an idea that, you know, money has been going into other parts of the market. The question is, does it return to tech or not? I, you know, that is a phenomenal question and one I grapple with virtually every day. And last week, you know, I added to Microsoft and I went to, uh, to Alphabet as a trade. I don't really know the answer. It seems to me it's going to take a little while longer because those tech companies that were so reliable in everybody's mind and just had these impregnable businesses, uh, they failed us in the last quarter and they failed us miserably. And every day we're still getting headlines that remind us how their businesses are weakening. More layoffs today, more layoffs announced over the weekend. So. It's not going to get there anytime soon. My view, I agree with Joe, which is why the positions I put on were more in the world he's talking about, like a Honeywell, for example, than in tech. So I think you got to be careful in tech. Look, some look very cheap. Semis look cheap, but they've looked cheap for quite some time now. So I just think it's going to be a little while longer before it happens. But I don't think the downside's all that great from here either in a number of names. You still got a lot of ground to make up. Amy, NASDAQ, Yep. Um, 11,200 is where we currently sit. 16.2 was the high. 5,000 points the NASDAQ has had come down. And I mean, it's, and it's off the lows. But, but that high was way too high. And I think that's, I think we're still unwinding the huge run up that we got during the pandemic when there was no other game in town and you had to be in these stocks. And you know, everybody was doing everything online and, and these stocks just, I mean, these numbers that, you know, the trillions of dollars of market cap that went into these companies was just way overdone. And I still think it has, there's plenty of room to come out. That doesn't mean that there aren't companies, good tech companies that are getting thrown out with the bathwater. I think that that, that is definitely the case. But um, if you look at the market caps of these companies compared to their ongoing businesses, I think they're still out of whack. It's not that they're bad businesses. It's just that they're too big. Well, well, I mean, they're just different businesses. And well, I mean, in many respects, they're the same businesses in a different environment. Right. I mean, that's sort of where Goldman's right. David Costin is is going today, where he says the characteristic most associated with large cap tech stocks, superior sales growth has, in his words, vanished, at least oh. for this year. Right. So if you were if you were willing to pay up for a premium level of sales growth, and now that comes out. Joe, why are you willing Absolutely. to pay elevated multiples relative to the market for sales growth that isn't what it was? And in the case of my strategy, why are you willing to even remain long in an Alphabet or an Amazon when you begin to see the revenue growth decline? So that's a fair question to be asking in this environment. We have clearly seen a 18-month period in which valuations are resetting, now they're touching the last place where you had that premium valuation. Well, have, have they reset enough, right? Because Costin also says they double, after doubling in valuation during the pandemic, mega cap tech now trades close to its long-term median valuation. 
Mega cap still has a little bit of room to go. I think there are other areas that were first in to this valuation recession. I, I think the semis are actually ahead of some of the mega cap equity names in terms of seeing that valuation compression. I think you've seen the negative performance damage already in a lot of quality semis like a Texas Instruments. Um, and I think that you're okay stepping in there. I don't think you've reached that moment just yet. Uh, let's, let's look at what Tesla's doing. Tesla's obviously coming under significant stress right now for fundamental reasons related to what Elon Musk has with his activities with Twitter. But beyond that, you also have to call into question it if they're going to see an earnings reset for that company as well. So- well, Jason, I mean, these, you know, Amy used the word that these companies, she used the words, th- th- these companies got too, too big. Um, Amazon, according to the New York Times, is looking to get smaller, laying off 10,000 people this week. Bank of America removes that stock today from its U.S. one list. You know, it's not that often that mega cap names like that, the marquee ones, get taken off marquee lists, right? This is just yet another example of how the market seems to be falling out of favor, at least for the time being, with names like these. Absolutely, Scott. So I think, you know, for num- for you know, to start, I, I would say the cost of capital over the last decade was essentially zero. I mean, money was free, and these, these companies exploded to the upside. Great businesses and with phenomenal growth. And obviously, there's been a regime shift, you know, over the last couple of quarters. And with monetary policy changing dramatically, you know, we have a terminal rate of, of pricing in of about 5%. I mean, this is a very different market than we saw five years ago, as an example. So for me, with, with growth slowing, uh, a different regime, it's hard for me to believe that these names are going to what's going to lead us out, you know, long duration names. So for me, I, I think you've got to be careful to, to the panel's point. I mean, you've got to be careful with these names. And I agree with Amy. They've, they've exploded to the upside for a reason, but we're in a different place now. So that's how I, that's my read on it. Weiss, when you say you bought like Alphabet, for example, for a quote unquote trade, what's the duration in your mm-hmm. mind that you that you'll hold that stock? Uh, uh, uncertain. That so you? there's a good chance. Did I stump you? How long are you going to hold it for a trade? Yeah. Ask another one like that. I like that reaction from Weiss. I, I, I actually stuttered on I was it, like, Scott. Uh, 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 no, there's a, there's a good uh, chance. There's a, there's a good chance that I get rid of it before the FOMC. Um, and I've got a stop on it that's not far below where we are now. I moved it up, so it could be before then. Uh, keep in mind that if the Supreme Court comes out and announces when they are hearing the Section 230 case, and that's nearer than that, which it won't be, attorneys need time to, to develop their briefs and their arguments, then, uh, then I'll be out before that date for sure. And I'm thinking, you know, I love how you just throw a deadline out. Oh, I don't know, maybe FOMC. We get to CPI the day before that. You realize that, right? Yeah. So, look, it, it's um, it, it, I use stops. So while it's continuing to go there, the stop, I don't know what's funny about that. That's protecting my risk. Oh, I'm I use not stops laughing at that. when it goes down. So, I'm not laughing so I may at be that. out before. Yeah. I, from a momentum perspective, I said this last week on the show, I'd rather be in Netflix or Meta right now. I gave 120 as a target for Meta. I still see the momentum pointing you in that direction. Alphabet doesn't have the momentum right now. Weiss, last word quick. 
Meta is just a flawed company. I won't buy it. For me, Google is a question of valuation. Meta is a question of where their business is going to be in three months and six months. I won't touch it just, just for momentum. Fundamentals have to be there. Okay. We'll take a quick break. Straight ahead, a downgrade for one big bank stock that most of today's committee owns. We'll debate that next. It's our call of the day. We're back in just two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about our call of the day. It's Bank of America today, downgraded from uh, at. Uh, all right, let me start over. Downgraded to neutral from buy at Citi. The firm saying we are, quote, in a tricky period for bank stocks as net interest income tailwinds seem fully factored in. And we see downside risks to 2023, largely from a catch on non interest bearing deposit outflows outweighing the benefits of fixed rate asset repricing. Joe, you own it. Save me, please. I own Bank of America, and I do not own J.P. Morgan. Who's America's bank? Used to be J.P. Morgan. Who's the better CEO right now? Used to be Jamie Dimon. I think it's Brian Moynihan. I think Bank of America is doing an absolutely fantastic job. I think Warren Buffett agrees with me. Warren Buffett maintaining his position in both American Express and Bank of America. It trades at 11 times earnings. It's outperforming the market year to date. And I think in 2023, any form of a modest recovery is going to benefit the wealth management unit. And I also think that trading activity, there's been a significant improvement in the intellectual capital that resides itself in that trading unit at Bank of America. And that's been fully represented in those earnings over the prior quarters. I mean, they look at a gain, too. It's, you know, I get that it's, it's down 25% from its 52-week high, but it is up more than 19% in a, in, in a month. I'd rather own Bank of America right now than some of the technology names that we talked about. Oh. Okay. Uh, Weiss, Bank of America has long been yours. Yep. And, and I know what you look for me to say that more important than Buffett saying owns it is me saying I'm owning it. But I'm going to let Jason say that. Um, <laughs> look, I, I've been saying all along Brian Moynihan is, is a phenomenal CEO. Uh, of course, I was kidding with that. He's a phenomenal CEO. He's done the right things. I think it's more of a client-friendly bank in terms of corporate clients, in terms of wealth management clients than J.P. Morgan. They're both excellent CEOs. I don't know if you can put one above the other. But Bank America, I always found to be less expensive and undeservedly at such a discount to J.P. Morgan. Uh, I also own Goldman. And yeah, it'll be rocky a little bit with net interest income and margins there. But... 
if the economy is going to get, and this is where it's a hedge in terms of the economy, if I'm wrong, if the economy is going to improve, the yield curve is going to uninvert, and then you'll see them able to capitalize on the spreads more so than they can now. Also, I think you'll see the first quarter or second quarter the latest capital markets reopen, and that are, that's fat margin business. So as you know, Scott, I'm not just a short-term trader. I'm also a long-term investor. Owned this for a while. I'm staying there. Okay, good stuff. Jason Snipe, you own a BAC as well. Yeah, so even if you look at this uh, this downgrade as an example, they kept the target at 40. There's still 4% upside. And, you know, the net interest income story is obviously the story that played out very well with earnings a couple of weeks ago with, with Bank of America and a lot of the other financials. They're still cheap relative to the market. You know, I, I am concerned about kind of the, the uh, you know, the inverted yield curve and the softening or slowing of the economy. But these these banks are very well capitalized, and I think they could stem the tide, you know, going forward. So I still like be a Bank of America here. So, Amy, you heard Joe say at the outset here he would take Bank of America over J.P. Morgan. You take J.P. Morgan quite literally because you own it and you don't own Bank of America. Why don't you argue the other side then? Well, I, um, you know, I just looked at Bank of America and obviously I own J.P. Morgan and Goldman. These stocks seem to really be trading together. Um, I, I can't argue that, you know, this year Bank of America has outperformed J.P. Morgan. Prior years, it's been the reverse. Um, so but the financials are really trading together. If I look at all the multiples, they're all trading between 10 and 11 times. Um, they've all had a very nice run of late. Um, we were underweight financials for a long time. We went more market weight earlier this year. Um, the outflows out of the financials groups are very supportive for them going forward. I think the money coming out of fintech, I just looked at a firm, you know, going from 200-ish to 16, uh, you know, that sort of competitive playing field moving back towards the banks is helpful. Um, I don't think that we're going into a particularly deep recession if we go into a recession in the next six months at all, which I'm still don't think is is my base case. So, um, yeah, I think the financials are a good place to be right now. I I like the point, Joe, that Amy just made, right? She cites the uh, firms of the world and money coming out in, in, you know, maybe a more heavily scrutinized atmosphere for more speculative parts of various industries. And if money coming out of those finds the way into more traditional financials. Brilliant. And and, and I think Amy is is not only on to that with financial institutions, I think she's on to that with the entirety of the overall market where the the safety of traditional assets, the safety of a word that I've heard Amy use and Jason use and Steven use, quality, I think that's going to be important as you look forward. But I I think, yeah, without question, the financial services industry, you're going to fall back upon, okay, I want to make sure that I am comfortable. I want to make sure that the leverage exposure, the risk assumption is where it needs to be. All right. Let's get the headlines now with Christina Partsinevelis. Hi, Christina. Scott, here's our CNBC News update at this hour. The Supreme Court has cleared the way for the January 6th committee to subpoena phone records belonging to the leader of Arizona's Republican Party. GOP State Chair Kelly Ward had sought high court protection of information on phone calls she made around the 2020 election when she was pushing to overturn former President Trump's election defeat. Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito said they would have sided with Ward. 
Near the University of Idaho, the deaths of four students are being investigated as homicides. Their bodies were found in a home just off campus. Classes at the school have been canceled for today. And the mascot of the Paris 2024 Olympics isn't an animal. Instead, Olympics officials chose the Phrygian hat, a French symbol of freedom and liberté. Many will know it better as the type of hats that Smurfs wear. Scott. Christina, thank you. That's Christina Parsonevola. Stay with us. Bobby Turner of Turner Impact Capital joins us shortly. Talk about his efforts uh, investing for good. Halftime's back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome to the ETF Edge portion of Halftime Report. I'm Bob Pisani. Amid the FTX debacle and chaos in crypto trading this week, one glaring fact has stood out. Bitcoin futures ETFs, including the largest, the ProShares Bitcoin strategy ETF, BITO is the symbol. It saw record trading volume. It operated smoothly. And it operated in a regulated market, the futures market. Let's talk to the man in charge of that ETF. Simeon Hyman is ProShares global investment strategist. Also joining us, Deborah Fuhr. She's the founder and managing partner of ETFGI and one of the world's foremost ETF authorities. Simeon, uh, the lack of regulation over FTX is the heart of this issue. But there was a highly regulated entity that traded Bitcoin in the futures market. It saw record volume. You run it. It operated officially. Uh, prices collapsed, but you could get in and out anytime during the day. So the ETF structure, coupled with futures, came through in a stressful situation with flying colors. It was a really effective belt and suspender strategy. We thought it was when we launched it. And not only do we have BITO, which is on the long side, but BITI, the short Bitcoin strategy ETF, also functioned very well. And we saw hot, very high volume in both. So there are folks who see it as a buying opportunity and folks that see it perhaps as a beginning of more here, downturn. I'm bringing this up, is it didn't prevent prices from going down and collapsing, but you got in and out when you wanted to at any moment of the Absolutely. The I mean, it's not, we see this in other markets like CDS and other places where the futures market can be a very good place for price discovery. It's regulated. There's a clearinghouse. Counterparty risk is managed. And when you put yeah. that com in combination with an ETF, a very effective solution. Deborah, there was a lot of pressure. There's been a lot of pressure on the SEC uh, and Gary Gensler to approve a spot Bitcoin ETF that would own Bitcoin directly. He's resisted doing that. His predecessors have as well. He says, I want clearer authority over the exchanges. There's fraud uh, in, outside of the U.S. Was this a prescient call on, on his part to turn this down? And, and what does this do for a chances of a Bitcoin ETF ever in the near future again? You know, that's a great question. But I would point to the fact that we have over 160 products that are buying spot exposure outside the U.S., in Canada, in Europe, in Brazil. Um, so we have seen that all of those products have continued to work well. And I do think, as Simeon said, the ETF wrapper works really well, regardless of what's inside of it. Yeah, I think that's the important point. OK, coming up on ETF Edge at 1 p.m. Eastern time, we're going to talk about this much more on the fallout from the FTX debacle on the ETF community. We'll also be discussing the incredible volumes in the pro shares, long and short NASDAQ 100 and S&P 500 ETFs. Every day, these are the heaviest volume ETFs that trade out there. We'll talk about that with the guy in charge, 
We'll discuss that and other developments for the remainder of the year for the ETF business. ETFedge.cnbc.com. Halftime Report returns right after this. All right, welcome back to the Halftime Report. Our next guest has long believed that you can make money and do good at the same time. Bobby Turner, the CEO of Turner Impact Capital, and has made affordable housing his latest investment play. Welcome back. I think it's been a few years since we've seen you here, and it's always good. It's great to be back. My, what has happened and transpired since I last saw you? Yeah, seriously. I mean, you guys have committed nearly $3 billion of infrastructure and underserved urban communities around the country. Why have you made impact investing your thing? Well, I think, uh, you know, even before the pandemic, uh, I think we forget just how um, disproportionately communities of color and immigrants were impacted just by uh, uh, social determinants, by being born in the wrong community. Uh, prior to the pandemic, you had uh, 48 uh, million families living on uh, food stamps. You had uh, one out of four renters uh, spending an excess of 60 percent of their income on rent at the expense of food security. And only one of three uh, students in public schools were proficient at grade level. And from my perspective, it just wasn't sustainable. And while we historically look to the government to provide these social services, they've actually failed delivering services. And um, I, I recognize that if you wanted to treat a problem in society, the government was fine. But if you wanted to cure it, you had to harness market forces to create durable, scalable, and profitable solutions. Mm. You're, you're raising two funds right now, as a matter of fact, uh, another health care fund, another affordable housing fund. It's an interesting environment, to say the least, to try and raise new capital. Uh, how, how's that process going? So interestingly enough, it took the, the, the one blessing of the pandemic was it truly highlighted just how disproportionately communities of color were, were underserved and, and, and met. Uh, but it also demonstrated how resilient impact investing, investments in social services, uh, survived during the pandemic. You built 124 schools, 36 health clinics, 20,000 units of workforce housing. When I, I, you mentioned the pandemic. I hear workforce housing, housing and I'm saying, well... What does this new environment of work mean for that effort? If, if people are working more desperately than they have before, work from home, that, that must impact you somewhat. Well, I would say that when it comes to workforce housing, this is really housing that is, is provided uh, uh, shelter for essential service providers. Uh, these are not uh, folks like you or me who have the luxury of working remotely from home. These are teachers and policemen and firemen and healthcare workers who are actually are going to work every day, who in many instances are spending upwards of 60% of their income on rent, and that's coming at the expense of food security and health security and uh, candidly retirement security. What about rising rates? How, how, does, how does that impact, just generally speaking, and then the ability of people to even afford the housing in which you're, you're building. Well, rising rates impacts uh, both the supply of workforce housing, because it's going to be very difficult to build new workforce housing. It also impacts the ability of our tenants to actually afford for their housing. That's what I mean, it's it's especially. Of, as interest rates cost, consumer financing goes up, their car loans go up, their credit cards go up. Um, you know, it's an effort that we've all got to address. Uh, uh, it's, uh, it's a systemic issue. Uh, and the reality is, is the demand is growing. It's large. It's unmet. And the existing supply is actually shrinking. I mean, is it, is, at some point, do, I mean, I'm assuming that you must, you must watch what's happening in the interest rate market and the bond market as close as anybody because it directly affects, as you said, the affordability of, of what you're trying to do for the people you're trying to do it for. Absolutely. Uh, it's problematic. And as you take a look at people's ability to pay rent, uh, when their car loans have increased, when their credit cards have uh, increased, it's not sustainable. And that's a bigger problem we face because the biggest challenge we face in society is not the disparity of wealth, it's the disparity of hope. And interest rates rising takes away hope. The other thing that's, you know, cropped up over the last, let's, let's just say, couple of years is I think it's fair to say a, a backlash in some corners, certainly politically, 
against ESG investing, um, if you want to use the words impact investing from those who suggest, well, that's woke investing. How do you deal with that? Um, I try to ignore it. I think that's probably... Can't really, though, right? Um, you can't. All you can do is, is refute it with proof and evidence. I think the concern that most people have with regards to impact investing is that it will come at a sacrifice in yield. Right? If you superimpose a social metric on a financial return, uh, it will come at a sacrifice in yield. But I have 30 years of proving that it's not the case. In fact, if you do it correctly, you can actually drive better risk-adjusted returns and more alternative investment strategies because the underlying demand is, is not correlated to the broader indices. Do you think it's, a, it's simply a phase that we're, we're going through, or is it going to, in some places, fall out of favor altogether? Oh, no, I think it'll actually become more in favor because the demand for impact investing has never been more important to society, but it's also never been more beneficial to an investor. Our last uh, housing fund generated a 25% return, 2.5 times equity multiple, while at the same time driving hope within a community that has been historically neglected. Does it limit, if anything, your ability to go into certain areas, uh, be it states, municipalities, where the, the politics of the moment don't line up with your own aspirations? Um, I can't. I don't sell myself as an impact fund. I sell myself as a value fund that's uh, uh, not taking advantage of, but it's investing in historically neglected communities because that creates an, an interesting opportunity to drive alpha for a portfolio. What's your overall view of the market well, while we have you here? I mean, you've been in the markets a long period of time. Um, you know, I, something I, I've been smart enough to stay away from the stock market for many years. I consider it to, to be something outside of my realm of expertise. I think that the market for impacting in underserved communities is, is, is growing. It's large. It's unmet. And there's not a lot of competition. So I'm excited. Yeah. Bobby, if I could ask you, when you look at underserved communities, one of the challenges is access to the technology that a lot of people have. Are, are we doing enough to build out the technological opportunities and underserved? Is the infrastructure bill enough? And is it something that you would uh, consider in your fund? We have a long way to go. Uh, and it was really um, evidence during the pandemic when you had uh, uh, nearly 50 million public school students have to go home and work from or study from their homes. And you could truly see the disparity of access of the digital divide in urban communities where they don't have high bandwidth. They didn't have iPads or iPods, and they really suffered. I think by most estimates, if you were, um, if you were educated in a suburban school over the last three years, you lost about six months of education. But in an urban school, you're more likely to have lost 18 months of education. And that had a lot to do with the digital divide. Good seeing you as always. Thank you for having me. All right, don't be a stranger. It. Come back. Making money and doing good. Uh, Bobby Turner, proof that you can do both. We'll see you soon. All right, up next, new clues on where hedge funds are putting their money to work. One area they're looking just came off its best week since October of 2001. We're following the money, and we'll do it next. All right, we're back to deadline for 13F filings is today. We've already have some clues on where hedge funds are investing now. Christina Partzinevelos is following that money for us. What have you learned thus far? I have learned that Kodu and D1 Capital Partners are interested in the chip sector. So you got Philip LaFont's Kodu that has taken a new stake in equipment names like ASML, LAM Research, Applied Materials, as well as some other familiar names like AMD, Marvell, NXPI, or NXP Semiconductors. The company had a small position in NVIDIA last quarter, but in Q3 it increased that position by over 6,000 700% just in Q3. But I want you to take a look. You're seeing on your screen right now NVIDIA's stock. It did pop this morning. Could be this news or could be the fact that there are uh, several bullish notes out from 
Bear, J.P. Morgan, uh, and uh, certain other names, too, just across the semi-space. And keep in mind, though, NVIDIA, though, is reporting after the bell on Wednesday, too. And in order to pay for that semi-increase, Coda reduced their Tesla stake by 16 percent. But Tesla still remains the firm's largest holding at the time of the filing. They also decreased their stake in some big cap tech names like Amazon, Meta, Microsoft, Netflix, and some Chinese names like Baba, Alibaba, and JD.com. And they also surprisingly got into some pandemic stay-at-home faves like Zoom, Shopify, DocuSign, and almost doubled their position in Peloton. That's an over $2.5 million stake. And then lastly, I'll end with D1 Capital Partners, also taking a new stake in chip names like NVIDIA and Micron while increasing their stake in ASML by over 200 100%. The company sold over $3.5 million in Atlassian and Expedia shares. Okay. And these, we know, end in uh, September 30th. Yeah, and, as of September 30th. Yeah, it's always so, critical to note yeah. when we actually we and see don't show these short today. Positions yeah. either. Right. Um, so, Amy, this idea of, of that period of time, let's just call it the end of September, but even today, establishing new positions in some of the chip stocks which have gotten beaten up pretty hard. Uh, over the course of the year. Is this a a good strategy in the here and now or not? Um, I think you have to be very careful. I think there are some good long-term chip stocks that um, have gotten hurt this year that if you have have a very long-term view, um, you can establish a position to make money. We own ASML, we own Cadence um, Systems, and I think um, both have real technology advantages that will... um, increase their values over over periods of time. I think, though, generally speaking, I still think um, there's too much semi-inventory. Um, there was double ordering uh, when their shortages happened. And so I don't think, I wouldn't say, it, I wouldn't give an all clear sign for the entire sector. Um, but, you know, there, there are, you know, this is a space where technology wins and, um, you know, I don't think it's crazy to take uh, advantage of some of the, the correction. Weiss, what do you think of, of these specific names, not the space in general, but the idea that Philippe has, has added, you know, AMD, Applied Materials, ASML, LAM, Marvell, NXPI? You like any of those names here? You know, ASML I do like, and it's a little different than the others. Uh, it, it's definitely a high-quality name with with in somewhat of a niche, as much as you can be in somewhat of a commodity business. Uh, NVIDIA, look, to me, it, it just way too prone to promotion, not only from the CEO, but from shareholders as well. So I prefer to stay away from it. In addition, I don't think it's necessarily cheap, although I'd be surprised if they miss yet another quarter because they don't typically miss. Uh, but, you know, there's lots of, you got to go through where the overordering is, where the double ordering is. and. I'm particularly troubled by the autos, frankly, because I think that you're seeing the autos slow and the autos were starved by semis. So now as semis are are sort of reaccelerating their production and supply chains uh, uh, strengthening again, will they be able to sell the semis into the auto companies over the next few quarters as everybody had been anticipating? So I'd stay away from those stocks. We also, so we got, I'm just waiting for a better opportunity. Yeah, we, we got upgrades today from a number of, of these things too. The timing's good. Um, UBS and Baird, as you said, uh, upgrade AMD, ASML upgraded Susquehanna, and then Global Foundry's named a top idea. So it's not like Wall Street's backing away uh, at the current spe- time from those. Specific, though. Global Foundries can benefit from the fact that there's geopolitical tensions in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. ASML 
pretty much a monopoly with the lithography, right? So there's AMD. It's because they beat Intel with their new data processor chips. So there's very specific ones, uh, catalysts for those names. Love the Lamb Research Call. 14 times stock has been breaking out. Semi-equipment name. That's the favorite name on this list. All right, good stuff. Thank you. That's Christina Partsinevelis joining us. Final trades after this quick break. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. All right, overtime tonight, 4 o'clock Eastern. Got more 13 Fs dropping, right? Today's the deadline. You, you heard uh, Christina Partsinovelos just here. She'll be back uh, going over those with us later on, too. Dan Greenhouse is going to be around. Alicia Levine, Kevin Gordon of Schwab was with us from Impact. He'll be back with us today. Jonathan Krinsky, too, on the technical signals for this rally. Jason Snipe, Home Depot in the morning, kicks off a pretty big week for retail. What are your thoughts here as you own the stock? Yeah, big time. So I, I would say here on, on HD, I think with, with rates continuing to rise at that kind of 7% uh, piece, I think folks are staying home, they're, they're staying put, they're not doing anything. So I think that will have an impact on, on the work that they're doing on their homes. The contractors are busy. I think operational margins will be continue to expand. So I like HD here. Okay. I think I think there's some strong prospects here. Why don't you give me a final trade while you're at it, Jason? Yeah, I like Palo Alto. The reporting Thursday after the bell, I think we'll continue to see revenue uh, expansion and continue growth here. So I, I like the, I like the name into the print. Okay, good stuff. Thank you. Amy, what do you have? Um, I have Cognex. The stock's been cut in half on inventory issues. Um, Long term, we think companies need to substitute capital for labor and they're a big winner. All right. A name we don't talk about all that often. Joey T., what do you got? How about Nucor? Nice little double bottom formation, cheap valuation. I think stock moves a lot higher. Still like that space in the market? I uh, certainly do. Materials are leading the S&P higher. Okay. Finally, Steve Weiss. Hope I haven't stumped you A here. name you've never heard from me, Scott. <laughs> I don't want yeah, to make it no, too difficult. And, and I'm going to stump you. trade? <laughs> and I appreciate that. A name you've never heard from me before, Scott, Moderna. Uh, I, look, they've had some good news today on a bivalent vaccine okay. for Omicron, you know, two different types of Omicron. Yep, yep, yep. But you'll get the cancer news that's uh, coming out okay. hopefully this month or, or before the end of the year. Okay, great. Thank you, OT. I'll see you then. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.